it's Imogen from Squarepeg. So every industry has its own jargon that to anyone inside the industry seems so commonplace. It's basically ignorable. Like when someone says that word or that phrase, no one bats an eyelid. And in the world of tech startups, the same thing is true. In 2013, Eileen Lee, a seed investor based in the US, coined this phrase that just totally took root in the startup vernacular. Many of you have already guessed the word I'm talking about, but for everyone else, the word describes a privately held startup company with a valuation of over $1 billion. I'm talking, of course, about those mythical, magical creatures, unicorns. And the word has become synonymous with the biggest of all the tech giants like Stripe in the US, Grab in Singapore, and Infinidat in Israel. And though these names are familiar, there are only about 500 unicorns in the world. Australia now has three, Canva, Safety Culture, and Airwallex, all valued at over $1 billion. Today, we speak to Lucy Liu, a founder at Airwallex, who, along with her four co-founders, started with an idea and built a unicorn in under three years. Stay with us. We start our story with Lucy as a kid who had just moved from Shanghai with her parents to New Zealand. So I moved to New Zealand when I was 12 years old. We had sheep just right behind our school. So that was really fun. I think that the difference is probably people are super athletic and just in general, very active in Auckland. So you'll see people going out on their yachts, boats and there's a lot of cyclists so you know you see people doing a lot of sports which is very rare in Shanghai because there's not enough space in Shanghai for people to do sports right but it was a good contrast and as a kid it's very easy to adapt probably a lot harder for my parents who are very used to living in the city. Now, generally, I find that the smallest experiences as a kid can radically shape who we become as adults. As a personal example, I remember walking home from the corner shop with my little sister when we were eight and six. And though we had no need or intention to cross the road, as we were passing the pedestrian crossing, my sister Mia pressed the traffic button, causing all of the traffic to stop. We were in a small town, so really it was only about five cars. About 20 seconds later, a police van pulled in and started to give my sister Mia the biggest telling off of her life. And it totally embedded in me this strange sense that rule breaking, even in the tiniest amount, would immediately be punished. It's daft, really. You probably have something similar, though as an experience from your childhood that has shaped some part of who you are as a person, big or small. And Lucy was the same. You'd probably think that for her, it was moving from Shanghai to New Zealand, but actually it was something else entirely. In high school, I skipped a grade. So I went to university when I was 17 and most of my friends were 18 or 19. And obviously one year doesn't make too much difference when you were like 30. But back when you were a teenager, actually, in a way, sort of legally, they can drink and I can't, right? (laughs) So it's things like that. and. I went to a girls' school, so right, and I think a lot of times the fact that I skipped a grade made it harder for me to make friends because I was actually in classes with people who are older than me, but then from my home group, I was actually with people 
who are the same age as me. So it was a little bit socially awkward for me because they, because I was never in, in classes with the people who are same age as me. Even like the last year of school, all of the girls have different uniforms that look actually more like normal clothes as opposed to like uniform uniforms. So I was, I was the only one in the class wearing the uniform and everyone else is different. So it's very obvious. And we, it's a small school, right? We have what, like 140, 50 people in each grade. So everyone knows each other. And I was known as a person who skipped a grade, right? <laughs> so I think growing up, you know, I wasn't the most confident person almost. Like I was very quiet and now leading a startup actually made me a lot more outspoken. That Lucy is the youngest co-founder at Owlix. Makes sense if you think about it. Lucy ended up graduating early from high school and decided to go into finance. She seriously considered engineering, but her dad and her would joke that she'd hate to get stuck building a highway for the next 10 years. But more than that, she had an eye on optionality and thought that finance was more widely applicable for a future career that she hadn't quite decided upon yet. Plus, while the course was demanding, it wasn't too demanding. I think there was a lot of flexibility because we only had, I think, 12 hours of class every week, which is not much. I work 12 hours a day right now. So, yeah, but I think course itself was interesting because it was relevant to what I was exposed to before. When Lucy says before, she's talking about her exposure to finance in general. Her dad was a stock trader, and so she's always been really interested in the financial markets, having learned the basics really young. He opened a stock trading account for me when I was 18. So (laughs) I think that had sort of a lot of influence on me. But I think I wasn't a very technical person. So there was more volatility in the market back then. So you could actually trade the different trends as opposed to being focused on the technical graphs, which I didn't really have time because I also had school. I think it trained me to be quite logical in a way. So like rule 101 of stock trading is you don't let your emotions get in the way of things, right? Like you don't get attached and you don't hold on to stop losses and things like that are very important. So I think, yeah, it definitely made me quite rational when I'm thinking about anything that's sort of business related. I do still get emotional (laughs) because we deal with people now. It also prepared me for my career later on because my first job was actually an investment consultant. And a lot of people had to learn from the basics, whereas for me, I think it was pretty straightforward. And throughout her childhood, Lucy and her parents would visit their family back in Shanghai, and it was here that she really first began to notice differences in technological advancement between China and Australia and New Zealand. Even I think after I moved to New Zealand and Australia, I still went back to Shanghai twice or three times a year, so during the holidays, to visit my family, friends, and also to do my internship sometimes. (laughs) At that time, digital payments and a lot of the marketplaces were just starting to pick up in China. So WeChat Pay, Alipay was around that time. So actually, I thought my life was a lot more convenient (laughs) because we had all of these things at our fingertips. So everything was on the mobile. After graduating from Melbourne Uni with a Master's of Finance, 
Lucy moved to Shanghai to get a job at China's leading investment bank, the CICC, or the China International Capital Corporation. It's an odd fish in the world of investment banking in China because it was the first part Chinese, part foreign investment bank being founded as a joint partner between a Chinese bank and Morgan Stanley. And it was here that she started to get a real insight into how the financial market operated. I think culturally Chinese people still trust Chinese-owned companies a lot more, especially in the financial institutional sort of perspective. Not saying that, you know, like Goldman Sachs and all of those banks cannot succeed in China. It's just because I think clients inherently think that local companies would understand their business more. You would be more knowledgeable around how to operate around regulations and be compliant because a lot of companies are listed for our clients back then. So I think in that perspective, how we actually interact and how we talk to our clients is probably a little bit different. But I think overall, like the financial markets are very international and globalized now. So, you know, there's not really that much of a difference in perception or knowledge barrier. So a lot of times culture is really mainly around how we operate and how we communicate, not so much on how we execute the deals. And while CICC was pretty informal in their working culture, she got to see what the opposite working culture was like through her friends who were all working in more traditional banks. And Lucy did not like what she found. So they would do a lot of written reports and very formal communications in a a local Chinese bank. So everything is written up and, you know, it's a lot of processes and structures around how you make your reports and make decisions. Whereas I think for me back then it was more, at least I think it's more westernized. So I would actually just write an email to my manager and then we would communicate in a quite business casual way almost. So there's not too much BS around, you know, what you actually have to write in order to get the approval. As long as everything is clear and then you will just apply approved, which is like how we operate right now. It was in this company that Lucy really learned the importance of building strong but flexible processes for core functions. One of them is in people and culture, or HR as it's more traditionally known. I love talking with founders about how they view HR as a function, mostly because it's usually the one with the most divergent answers, coloured almost entirely by the individual's personal experience with HR as a function in previous roles. Some see it as directly related to high performance, others see it as a drag on growth or overly compliance-oriented. Lucy's experience in the CICC also shaped how she viewed the importance and focus of the HR function. What is memorable to me is actually we had a lot of very formal HR processes. So from when I joined as a graduate, we had a full-on induction program. I actually met my boss's boss as well, so our managing director. So she feels that it's very important for her to have direct and close relationships with all of the team members. So I actually met her as well. And, you know, how we did our expense claims, how we did our travel policies. So I think a lot of that actually stayed with me. And having that sort of in the back of my mind means that when we're designing it for AirWallets, we can bring in a little bit of that experience while making it obviously relevant to a tech company. Having a corporate experience definitely helps when you're building your own startup because you sort of know what a very structured company would look like 
you can still pick and choose what you like and what is suitable for the startup itself. But at the end of the day, when you're growing to a multinational business, a lot of these things are inevitable almost. So you would always have like that internal control, corporate governance. So it's, it's good to have that experience. So you don't have to be like building it all from scratch and then not knowing what exactly it should look like. After two years in Shanghai, working as an investment consultant, Lucy left her job and moved with her husband to Melbourne, where she began to plan for her next big move. I was actually looking for startup ideas, to be honest. But given that I was an investment consultant for two years, really, I could only think of very like finance-related ideas. So whether to probably start a very small VC fund with a bunch of friends, then we, we thought, oh, it was going to be really difficult looking for LPs because, yes, just the market, they like startups still recognize well-known funds a lot more than new funds. And then we thought about like real estate, like small projects, not like really big ones. So I think I was actually brainstorming a few and I didn't really like any of them. And as Lucy was looking around for an idea she loved, so too were her future co-founders. But how the five Airwellix co-founders Lucy, Jack, Max, Jijing, and Keylock got together is mostly serendipitous. Max seems to be the linchpin of the group, as he held the original friendship with most of the Airwallex founders. And hearing Lucy tell of how her and Max became friends feels like the stars had aligned in a very particular way. And when I say stars, I mean the ruling planet of Libra, Venus. So... I was introduced to Max eight or nine years ago through a common friend of ours. And he was still an architect back then. So we became really good friends because we had like similar hobbies. We're both liberal if anyone (laughs) likes to follow. (laughs) Our birthdays are really close and we're like perfectionists. So whenever we develop a new hobby, we would spend like, hours trying to perfect that hobby and become an expert in it and at that time our hobby was drinking coffee so (laughs) we actually went to all of the specialty cafes in melbourne and you know just literally drank coffees all the time (laughs) and so much that he decided to open the cafe with jack who at that time was doing a few other side projects with Max and through that obviously I then started going to Max cafe to drink coffee (laughs) and Jack used to just come into the cafe at 3 p.m during his break if it's actually a break (laughs) to check on the show to chat to Max and have a coffee and that's how we met. Max the Libran perfectionist come cafe owner also went to high school with Jijing and then to university with Jack. So by this point, they'd been friends for years. And so over the famously good Melbourne coffee, the group started to hang out and share startup ideas. I imagine it like a scene from Friends in Central Perk, only this time in Melbourne. Yeah, the world is very, very small. Like very, very small. We have so many common friends. It's like going on Instagram and then you you see all of your friends liking each other. Yeah, so the world is very small. And that's how we got together. And according to Lucy, the idea of a fintech company solving problems for small businesses cropped up a bunch of times. But it wasn't until one evening when they were sitting around that Jack pitched the idea of a lifetime. Now, 
Important context here is that in addition to running a cafe in Melbourne, Jack was a solutions architect in the foreign exchange market for a major international bank. He'd spent a career understanding how to optimize foreign exchange so that banks could pay and receive money in foreign currency, and then building the models and the platform upon which these transactions happened. So Jack didn't just have some vague understanding of how the foreign exchange market worked. He lived inside of it. And it was this experience that gave him the foundational knowledge to spot just how broken the international payments market was for small businesses. So when Jack and Max first opened the cafe, they were importing a lot of coffee cups and materials from China, and they had to make a payment via some sort of tool. And I think at that time, the only thing that the seller took was a direct bank transfer or Western Union. So they explored different ways of making the payment. But either way, the fee was 5 to 6%, which was very, very expensive. And when you're operating a business, obviously, you're very cost conscious, right? And so that sort of became very obvious to Jack that, you know, SMEs are sort of suffering in a way when it comes to FX because he was very used to institutional trading. So everything is like 0.0 something percent. Whereas now um, in the retail market, it's like five, six or even more. So he thought, you know, there must be a way to solve this with technology, given that he's a software engineer. So that's how he pitched the idea to the rest of us. Now, because it really cracks me up to hear co-founders tease each other, I'll tell you that actually the initial pitch wasn't this concise. It wasn't as simple as small businesses are paying way more than big companies for essentially the same service. And that's all because they hadn't yet perfected the art of the pitch. I knew they were onto something, like, but Max is not the best at explaining what they want to do. Because <laughs> like, Max is from a design background, so he's not a software engineer. So he, he keeps on giving me like really jargony phrases, and I have no idea what he was talking about. But eventually, with all of the co-founders on the same page, they started working on some serious market research. The team knew plenty about financial markets and FX at an institutional level. So they started with the opposite, consumer-focused technology. So Max actually did a test transaction on TransferWise and it took him eight days to get the money that he needed. But there was, this was like five years ago. We thought, you know, if this is for business, obviously this wouldn't work because, you know, who's going to wait eight days to get their money? And maybe consumer as well because it's cheaper and it's a new idea and it's a pretty cool thing to do. But if it's for a business, they would need the money quite immediately. So I actually thought, you know, oh, that's interesting because I knew the banks were making crazy money out of FX. And I thought, you know, if there's a cheaper way to do it, I'm pretty sure we could come up with something. And it was at this point that they decided to pull the trigger and everyone left their jobs. So Xi Jinping flew all the way from Shanghai to Melbourne. We rented a small office and we registered for a company. Xi Jinping was doing a lot of research on algorithms that could reduce the cost of our FX trading. And we sort of used that for our first pitch to our pre-A investors to raise money. The initial vision that Lucy will explain in a moment is now just a slither of what Airwallex has grown into. And I want to pause here and reflect on just how common this is 
for initial visions to blossom into something so much more complex and substantial. Just as building a startup is an iterative process, so too is the vision for that startup. And in Air Wallach's case, they started with foreign exchange, or FX, and international payments in the simplest forms. At that time, it was just FX and payments, but not in the sense that how big it is now. But at that time, it was really still sort of remittance equivalent payments, so for businesses. But I think what was interesting to the, our pre-A investors was how scalable our platform could become, and the cost reduction compared to banks. But to be honest, I think it's really the bank's bread and butter to make huge margins out of these products. It's not that they don't want to reduce it necessarily. But I think, you know, as a startup, obviously, efficiency and cost reduction are the two most popular type of problem-solving things that you could come up with. So the first idea was really just efficiency and also cost reduction for SMEs trading cross-border. And with the pitch worked out for investors that they were going to save cost and time for SMBs on their international remittance and payments, they set about raising a round. But before we get into that, it's probably worth us spending just three minutes to understand how FX works for small businesses and why it was such a big problem. So the international currency exchange system was originally built to ensure that there was a global network of banks that could facilitate international payments to a really high degree of trust and standardization. They adopted the SWIFT messaging protocol, which put some guardrails around how the system should operate. And then largely, the banks were left to it. Because this is still a complex and therefore costly process, in general, the service was always more affordable and accessible for the biggest end of town, who could absorb the cost as a tiny fraction of the overall transaction. For the smaller, medium-sized businesses who were beginning to transact over borders in far smaller transaction sizes, the costs were pretty substantial. Plus, it was really difficult to understand how fees were applied and how quickly money could move between bank accounts. In the simplest terms, it was just really hard work. Air Wallach's vision was to effectively replace the entire system and become the interface for customers and the pipes between currencies. And though this sounds simple, Acquiring the licenses, relationships, and regulatory know-how to operate across markets is incredibly hard. Many of you will know that Airwallex went on to become Australia's fastest anointed unicorn, which is beyond unusual. And so most people assume that their fundraising journey must have been a breeze. But like every startup on the planet, wasn't quite so. That round wasn't hard, but whenever we pitched, nobody understood what exactly we're going. To be honest, I think B2B startups are not that popular back then. I mean, other than SaaS. So payment companies and cross-border payment companies are very rare in the market. So it took a little bit of time to really educate them around, you know, how big the market is, where we see ourselves. So in the early days, raising money definitely a lot of times is around relationship building and chemistry. So actually, our first pitch with Gobi, the investor was late for 45 minutes and we only scheduled an hour. So actually, Jack only talked to him for 15 minutes. But obviously, we had follow-up meetings. We had due diligence. And not much to DD, right, back then. It's just the five of us. We didn't even have a six-employee at that time, which is why I say, you know, in the early days, it's a little bit of luck. And it's actually about 
whether you actually like that person sitting across the table. By the time they came to their Series A rounds, which is when SquarePeg invested, they'd started to get a really good sense of just how scalable the solution they were building was. And they had a lot more than just the five of them and their ideas to talk about to investors. I had a read back through the investment paper that was circulated through SquarePeg at the time, and the investment thesis for us really came down to two things. The first was the team. They were bright and ambitious and just so determined. And the second was the scale of the problem and how in success, our wallets could become the platform upon which all businesses transact internationally. I think by Series A, we've developed better understanding of the market, then figured out a lot of what exactly we want to do. And we are pretty sure that we want to heavily invest in building our own infrastructure around the networks, the local settlements, the FX capability. So we were very infrastructure focused. And I think that was interesting to our Series A and B investors because they thought, you know, it's very hard to get licenses, very hard to have those local integrations set up. But once you do, obviously you have your own proprietary network for businesses to transact on it. So they saw us probably as a swift alternative and something that could potentially power different platforms as well as the initial SME idea that we pitched. And we saw a lot of pain points in enterprise clients as well because all of them had very new business models. And in order for them to scale and to expand globally, they needed the infrastructure to help them develop their own products. And that's something that the banks can't really offer because banks have very standardized products, even if they have APIs or automated solutions, but it's very standardized solutions. It does, might not necessarily fit with what the marketplaces and the enterprises want to do. And that's where we saw our biggest opportunity because we thought, you know, once these products go live, they actually could have a lot of volume transacting on the Airworks infrastructure. And that's sort of how we approached our Series A and B investors. And as the platform developed, so did the focus of their fundraising discussions. From Series C onwards, that's when really our volume started to pick up. So most of the fundraising was then around the bigger vision, how we commercialize, how we monetize everything. And it's very metric focused. So they would then look at, you know, our revenue model, our growth model. So it's very, I guess, you know, Excel. And it's, it's, so everything is very number based. And though the valuations kept creeping up and the Airwallex team started getting lots of attention in the press, the team tried hard to remain as focused as possible. Internally, we try to not celebrate fundraising that much. I mean, we obviously, we, we would tell the team and we would like do a little toast at the town hall, at the all-hands meeting, so people are aware of it to make sure that they know that we were well-funded, especially now that you know, we are sort of in a global economic crisis. But other than that, we're quite result-driven as a team. So we then, I mean, the result is not to raise more money or to reach a certain valuation. I think that's sort of the result of you doing something well. I think there's more substance to what our goals are. You know, we try to make sure that the team is still focused on what we're doing and the problems that we're solving and you know, the products that we're developing. And now they're five years into their journey. The vision for Airwallex is still growing and crystallizing. 
I think till last year, we were still like a payment business almost. But I think going forward, we really want to be a modern sort of technology stack for businesses of all sizes to operate internationally. And that means not only restricting ourselves to payments, but also to any other sort of tools or products that they may need. And ultimately, we want the financial services to be borderless and frictionless. I think that's sort of where we're heading. Jack liked to say that we were building the AWS for financial services. But I think that means a lot for engineers, but it doesn't mean much for the other people. Which is why they're lucky they can speak to both technical and non-technical people. Because to execute on such a huge vision, they needed to hire a team who could get behind it. Right now, Airwallex has a global team of over 420 people with 10 international offices and a product that can make payments to over 130 currencies. And when you speak to the team, one thing that really stands out is their focus on hiring. We've always been very invested in hiring because we're very, very certain that people make the business. So um, we're very selective. One of the things we're proud of even up till now is that People who join us will always say, you know, the most exciting part is that because the interviews were so difficult and or or because they had like all these interesting conversations or discussions with the people who interviewed them, that's exactly why they decided to join our Wallex. To illustrate this, Lucy told me how their thinking has evolved in what they look for in candidates and how they structure the process to hunt for these skills. The most difficult team to join in our Wallex is probably the product engineering and the strategy teams because they all have very long interviewing processes to make sure that the one, the candidate is technically strong. Two, there's a lot of what we call raw intelligence. So we don't look for experiences as much as we used to. We want to make sure that, you know, whatever new information we put in front of them, they're able to quickly learn and then be able to succeed at what they're doing. Because we find like everything, a lot of things that we do are very innovative and it's very new. So prior experiences doesn't actually apply in most cases. So it's actually a little bit meaningless to look for purely the experience or because it's very unlikely that they've done the exact same thing previously. So the typical process for these teams would be a writing test or a code test of some sort, a test for logical thinking and critical thinking. And for the engineering team, something quite technical to show that they have very good coding habits and, you know, they're, they're very strong developers. And then it would then go to our interviewers who would then ask questions, one around, you know, obviously the standard questions around, you know, personality, culture, and what are you good at, you know, what you're not good at but they will always have some sort of other questions, which is quite discussion-based. So I know one of the questions that our product team likes to ask is, you know, how does the GPS work? Most likely people don't know how it works, right? Like how exactly does it work? Not like how you use one. There is a right answer to this, but we're actually not looking for the exact right answer, but we're looking for how you think, how you approach, analyze, and then how you give your answer. One of the founders will ultimately be still involved for either a short or longer sort of interview at the end, depending on the team that the person is interviewing for. And so even with a co-founding team of five, 
they are still all intimately involved in the hiring process for their team. Though what they focus on has shifted as they've had to develop the skill of delegating and structuring teams. Initially, all of the founders had a lot of different tasks and responsibilities on our shoulders. So we did everything pretty much. And then over time, you had to find what you're really, really good at or what you're passionate about and then let go of some of the responsibilities and just hire the smartest person to join the team and do that part. So I think initially, I probably didn't imagine how many things that we have to delegate almost because you, you can't possibly imagine every single scenario that will happen until it actually happens. And then you realize, oh, there's probably an issue or a problem that we want to solve. And can I do it myself? Probably not sometimes, most of the time. Then I'll have to look at, you know, who we could potentially bring in to fill that gap. So a lot of times we were doing catching up on hiring because, you know, <laughs> just trying to fill in the places. But now it's a lot more strategic. So we will actually think about long-term what we want and who we want to potentially be there. And then we start the hiring almost a little bit earlier to allow us to have more time and to meet a lot of people and to really find the most suitable candidate to fill that role. So, yeah, I think over time, we definitely changed how we think and how we approach hiring. I mean, the fundamentals are the same, but the planning and the rest is probably a little bit different. Mostly, the way the Airwallex founders split their time is as follows. As the CTO, Jijing is the easiest as he's tech-focused. Jack is the CEO and also manages investment and fundraising. Keylock is an architect in the engineering team, and Lucy and Max split basically everything else. Their titles seem to change every few months, depending on what their latest focus is, which, when Lucy was explaining how it all worked, really seemed to make her laugh. I think it just evolved like very naturally over time. We'd never really sat down and say, okay, this is what you do. This is what I do. We try to fill in every role, but we don't necessarily want conflicts. So too many people doing the same job obviously create conflict. And over time, it's just how it is. We still have like short discussions sometimes. And like, well, there's like, this particular project, Max take it or Xijing take it or Lucy takes it or Jack takes it. So we, we still have those conversations, but it never really become very long discussions because we know each other too well. So we naturally just pick whatever is the best person for that job. And as I was chatting to Lucy, I was asking her how she managed the growth in the Airwallex business and how she felt herself grow over the past few years. She had an answer that I personally really loved. I've gotten so good at time management. Like I've never really been a morning person. I can get up early. I used to force myself to get up early so I can squeeze in a little bit of exercising time before work. But I have a young family and, and I feel like I'm probably the most stressed person because I also have my personal life and family life to take care of. And once that I think I've sort of adapted that lifestyle, I was like, oh, it's actually very doable. And it's not as scary as how the media portrays it as well because, you know, like there's so many articles and blogs online about working moms about you know startup founders being stressed depressed <laughs> and I think it, I just mentally I become so strong that I was like oh these issues are not that serious I mean once you sort of take the spotlight of everything and yeah so I think 
I've gotten really good at time management. And I think as I set a very good example for others who have young families or, you know, girls thinking of joining us, females thinking of joining us, but then they're scared of being how stretched they will be in a startup. You know, it's completely doable. We have a lot of female leaders in our senior management because they're really good at what they're doing. So I think the power of building a startup is that you get to make your own rules. That's it for this week's conversation with Lucy from Airwallocks. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more stories like Lucy's, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you want to help, leave us a five-star review. Otherwise, find us in all the regular places. Have a great week.